Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Personalization Outbreak Podcast, your go-to podcast for meaningful conversations with influential leaders from different sectors every week. Our guest this week, Diane Sanford, is a tenured human resources executive with over 25 years of restaurant industry experience. Diane currently serves as the Chief People Officer for On the Border Mexican Grill and Cantina, headquartered in Irving, Texas. Now, Diane, as a thought leader, serves as a strategic partner to senior operations leaders and has developed curriculum for women leaders to expand their leadership capacities and influence in a typically male-dominated industry. Now, today, we'll talk about how the pandemic has prompted employers to start listening and caring for their employees in a much more personalized way. And we'll also discuss how to close the post-pandemic trust gap that exists between employers and employees. And finally, we'll talk about the possible extinction and necessary evolution of the CHRO role. Before we get started, click the like button below, share it with your colleagues, and subscribe to our YouTube channel and social media at Glenn Yopis so that you can remain in touch with our most recent content about leadership in the age of personalization. Let's get started. You are listening to Personalization Outbreak, a podcast about the collapse of traditional corporate standards in today's more personalized world. I'm Glenn Yopis. I'm a leadership strategist, author, contributor to Forbes, and founder of the Leadership in the Age of Personalization movement. On this show, I'm interviewing executives across multiple sectors to find out how the balance between standardization and personalization can exist. Diane, thank you so much and welcome to the show. Glenn, thank you so much. It's my pleasure to be here. So Diane, we'd like to get to know our guests on a personal level. And you shared with us uh, or shared with me prior to the show that, that you find your most authentic self when you're with family and friends. Why? Now, before you answer, take it to another dimension. I mean, there's got to be a story. here. You know, and this will probably get me into trouble with the current topics that we've, we've got ahead of us. But when I'm with people who know me as a person, it not just the title of my job. It just allows me to relax without that label. Um, you know, the role of HR leader comes with a lot of preconceived ideas about how you should behave and what you should say and what you should laugh at and what you should talk about. And when I'm with people who know me as Diane, then I could, I'm free to be me. So that's where that answer came from. Well, I love it. You know, it's, it's interesting. Uh, recently, I was having a, a discussion with a group of leaders and, you know, there just seems to be this um, expectation of who they should be and what they should be based upon their title alone. And I actually believe that in the age of personalization, we're going to start seeing a different dynamic, one where there's the function and then the individual that's driving the function. And I believe that those are two mm-hmm. those are two distinctly different things. So there's the function and then there's the individual. I mean, and I think what that's going to bring about is give us a better sense of who we are as 
uh, as people uh, rather than being defined by our function alone. So why are you at peace when listening to your favorite music when exercising? I have a very busy mind. And when I am doing something, working out and listening to music, then I'm I, it forces me to be present. I don't worry about what's coming around the corner. I don't think about what was in the rearview mirror. It helps me just be in the present. It's very sort of a liberating moment. So, Diane, you seem to be one that wants to get the best out of everyone you touch and influence. Why do you claim to be a maximizer? an individualized. Help us understand that side of you. And, and does it extend just beyond your, your uh, job title and job description at work? Yeah, it is something that, you know, I chose those two words because the way that I approach my relationships with people, the way that I approach building teams and working is it's not just about the group as a whole or our family as a whole. It is about the individual, the individuals that make up the team, what they're good at, what resonates with them. So just keeping it within the work setting, if I am introduced to a new team, I have to get to know them as people, what motivates them, what they're interested in, what they like to work on, what they don't like to work on. Because then when it comes time to focus on the work and build the strategy or approach to tackling the work, I understand a little bit more about where their strengths lie. And I can help put people, match them to the work where they get the most satisfaction out of it. And that's really where you get the best work when people feel comfortable and they're working on what they want to work on, which is usually what they think they're good at, then um, you get the maximum output. That's really what drove those two words. But in a, in my family, you know, I have a daughter who's 25 and a son who's 21. They're very different people. And so, you know, anybody who is a parent of more than one child understands that when the first one comes along and you think you've got it all figured out, then the next one comes along and nothing you did with that first one works with the second one. So you have to approach them as individuals to try to, you know, keep them within the guardrails of hopefully growing into being good people. And the same approach applies to work. Right. Everybody has something different that they bring, a different background, different stressors, different wants. And I believe that I really have a, an ability to connect with people on that one on one basis that makes the whole better. I agree with that. I think that's why I've connected with you, Diane. So, Diane, well, thank you. <laughs> well, let's. Talk a little bit about the restaurant industry for a minute. Okay, sure. 25 plus years in this industry. And I'm sure most people that are listening or watching, uh, they, they know what their favorite restaurants are, but they don't understand the industry. What's distinct 
and unique about this industry? Uh, and maybe talk about some of the challenges that you see and opportunities uh, with respect to uh, the human resources side of the business. All right, well, I'll try to be succinct and on point with this answer. The restaurant industry comes from a place of true, truly wanting to deliver a great experience. Not talking about the business side of it, but I'm talking about where this idea of serving others came from. And at the heart of all restaurant people, I truly believe is a servant's heart with the desire to be the best part of someone's day. And so if you take that as the nucleus and then you wrap business around it, the tendency is it loses some of its heart or it can. And so the restaurant brands or the mom and pops that have a certain energy about them where people enjoy working and enjoy eating, it's because of the culture. It's because of the environment that the owners or the employers have created and the connections they made with their employees so their employees can feel free to make connections with the guest. Um, the challenges with the industry has always been, you know, from a business perspective, it operates on a very slim margin. The, the labor model has really not evolved very much in the last 50 or 60 years. If you look at kitchens and restaurants today, a lot of them look a lot like they did in the 60s and 70s. And so a lot of the challenges that legacy brands are having are really competing, leveraging technology to compete with some of the newer QSR, uh, quick service restaurants, where they're getting food in and out pretty quickly. What's getting lost there is the experience, right? You can interchange one brand for another. And so the hospitality industry in and of itself, what makes it special in my mind and why I've stayed in it for so long is because it's an opportunity to make a human connection and have an emotional experience. The industry as a whole has changed quite a bit just from the ownership model of most of our brands. They are cycling through different owners in a very short period of time, which challenges culture, challenges strategy. Um, and then if you just look at the challenges today in the macro environment post pandemic or zombie apocalypse, as I like to call it, <laughs> with the workforce expectations, the epiphany that people have had going through the pandemic about what's important and what's not. Our industry is hard. The work is hard. The hours are long. And we've got to come to terms with how are we going to attract talent in an industry where we may not be lining up completely with the new values that and the new expectations that people are having about work. So, I know, so just so our guests know, you're, you're the chief people officer at, you know, on the border Mexican uh, grill and cantina. And uh, 
uh, I know that when I visit, you know, Irving, Texas, that this is one of the places I automatically go to. Uh, the food is great. Um, how do you think the culture has changed um, in, in restaurants today? Uh, let's not call it post-pandemic because we're not there yet, but certainly coming out of the pandemic. What, how has the culture changed? Because, you know, as a consumer myself, I'm just grateful that I can be served by somebody these days. Uh, so how, how are they thinking and feeling about their own value as employees uh, in these restaurants? Well, I don't want to make the comment or give anybody the impression that they had the same, that our people, restaurant industry workers, had the same stressors as first responders or the healthcare community, but they worked for most of the pandemic while the rest of us were locked away in our homes, away from people. These folks were essential employees and they were out there. And so while COVID and the pandemic happened to everybody's whole life, it wasn't just something that happened to them at work. They were dealing with the same stress of trying to homeschool their kids or trying to find childcare or paying bills on reduced hours as everybody else. And yet they were going to work as well and serving guests. So I would say they're tired. They're a little crispy. They're a little uh, overworked. And during the pandemic, the heart of it, I think they understood as a collective whole that the hard work and the extra effort was required for their company, not just on the border, but for their company to survive. And I believe that they're were hopeful that once the country reopened and things got a little more back to normal or more recognizable, that the stress of work would ease up a little bit and they would get back their work-life balance. And I don't think that that has actually come to fruition. So they have also had changing experiences and reprioritized what's important to them a lot of them are leaving our industry for nine to five Monday through Friday jobs. I don't know if there are ever really any nine to five jobs anymore, but more routine um, expected schedules, consistent schedules that, you know, don't change and where they don't work and open to a close every day. Um, so I think the culture at the heart of it inside restaurants, you've got, hospitality workers and managers and people who live and breathe this work. And for many, it is truly a calling. I think they continue to want to give their guests a great escape or a great experience. I do think that they want their employers to understand what they've been through, and support them in different ways. And some companies are stepping up to do that. And some are struggling to figure out how how to do it. Diane, you know, when you describe this, I mean, was this an opportunity for, for your organization and or for you know, your peers and other chief people officers to step back and say, how do we get to know and see 
our employees uh, as humans. I mean, clearly the pressures that have been on them. I mean, I have to believe that this maybe changed a little, maybe gave you some deeper thought or perspective around um, what more you can do for them as they were doing for the organization. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Oh, a thousand percent agree with you. I think it brought to light, I believe, more to our colleagues than I think HR leaders knew this. I think the tsunami of feeling and emotion and evidence that people needed another level of support that the COVID experience has provided has given people who do what I do an evidence-based example to go to their other colleagues and say, look, we need to do these other things. And so we really leaned in. I really leaned into listening and, and caring for our employees in a different way. And I'll give you a couple of examples. Before the pandemic, mental health and wellness, depression, drug use, suicide, all of that was a topic that because I oversee benefits, you know, I knew that people were dealing with a lot. Let me just say that. And from personal stories of people who work for us, I knew I had some very personal examples of our team members of what they were going through. And so we had the requisite employee assistant program and, and the mental health benefits that they could get through our medical benefits. But with the pressures that everybody was going through, I mean, the corporate folks being locked in their house with their families was a little bit stressful. And so they needed support also. So we really leaned into extending telemedicine, telebehavioral health, making that available at no cost to our team members, whether they participated in our benefits plans or not. Um, we reached out to our carriers and asked for help in terms of what could we provide these workers that weren't at a computer. And we came up with two or three different types of benefits benefit plans that they could have access to. In addition to one thing that I think they needed from us as leaders, which was frequent, open, candid communication and a way for them to give us feedback. And we did outreach in a lot of different ways to check on them and how they were doing um, when you weren't seeing people you knew very often, the first introduction to Zoom so you could see their face was very comforting. So we tried a lot of different things. Um, we unfortunately had to release a large part of our organization when everything shut down. I created something called Club Familia, which was a way they connected to those employees and they could opt in, but they could hear updates about our business and when we were ready to rehire, we reached out to them first and 95% of them came back. 
So I think my, the people who do what I do understood that things needed to change and we had to start seeing the individuals who work for us as complete people, mothers, fathers, sisters, brothers, caretakers of their parents, caretakers of their children. The past experience of the 18 months gave us permission to talk about it more as a business imperative. You know what, um, Diane, as I listen to you, you're, it's clear that the pandemic awakened all of us to get to know our people or to know our employees as people and individuals. But, uh, but it's also a reminder that no one said that we couldn't before. And absolutely not. (laughs) And I share this because as much as we were, you know, forced to wear masks, I've learned over the past 18 months that we've all been wearing masks our entire lives and we're tired of it. And so clearly health and well-being is now a priority. You know, we're all in the business of health and we've been talking about this for years now in the age of personalization. So moving forward now, how do you see your role in maybe helping close trust gaps? That exists between your team members and uh, maybe with leaders or maybe the organization itself, because when you have felt suppressed for as long as many people have, uh, these things just don't go away. And as you mentioned, now the employee has a different expectation from their employer. So what's next here? How do we start start solving this? Because a lot of people, unfortunately, seem to think that it's we have the permission to go back to our own all ways because we've been able to prove that we can adopt new ways. But I don't think that's the case. Um, what do you think about how do we close these trust gaps? Well, I think the, the world of work has changed in significant ways permanently going forward. Uh, I think the, the bubble has burst in terms of what will be tolerated and what what won't be just in the small way of companies having to accept that, Oh, you know what? Our people can get work done from places outside of the building and work can get done at off hours while people are actually managing their lives. And, you know, for a lot of companies and executives to accept just that basic premise, that's a big deal. It shouldn't be, but I think that was a big epiphany. I think going forward in terms of trust, and I've I've been a big believer in this, and I know we talked about where I feel most comfortable and and all of that, but I will tell you that I've had the most success making connections with people when I am my authentic self. So when I say what I think, when they know they're getting the real reaction and not the scripted version of what they think I should be saying. And I think that's required going forward of all leaders. I think now the new baseline is, hey, company or institution, we're starting from a place of skepticism, just 
you know, if you take, if you zoom out and think about where society is in terms of trust in large organizations, I think we're dealing with the negative bank account and leaders need to be honest, whether they're delivering good news or bad news, it just needs to be real. They need to be authentic and be comfortable, like I said earlier, being who they are and not what the organization or the title uh, they have says they should be. So people expect to see a real person in the role at the helm of an organization, and they want to be told the truth. As long as somebody who's had to deliver a lot of really tough messages over my career, I have learned people can hear and accept anything you tell them as long as it's the truth and it's done with respect. And if you are saying, hey, our business is going through a tough time and here's what we're going to do about it. And here's where you fit in that. What do you think? People respect that. And I don't think we're going to be allowed to hide behind boardroom doors or titles any longer. And I, I think we're, we're really starting to see a lot of evidence of that uh, in the media. No doubt. And it's just getting started. So, Scott, yeah. where are we right now, Scott? I am absolutely loving this, just sitting back and enjoying the conversation. I tell you what, uh, maybe I'll just make a, an observation and ask for Dan to maybe uh, if you could offer some feedback or just some perspective on it. Sure. Um, as I'm as I'm hearing you and learning more about you and your approach, I mean, you are the embodiment of of an, of what we might call an evolved HR um, executive in terms of uh, really acting the act and walking the walk with personalization as opposed to just making new buzzwords, right? I really appreciate where that's coming from. And what you, what I'd like to observe here is that if we look at that, say the older version of say what we thought of as HR, something we talked about a little earlier, we were talking about HR's job, right? Is to uh, mm -hmm. compliance per, to protect the organization. And then we had to shape the individuals to make sure that happened, right? What I'm liking about this is that what we have here is uh, like Glenn said, we have a role, or a function, but when we're looking at employees, right? From a HR perspective, we're looking at the employee as a role and a function, that's one side, but we're also looking them at them as, as people, right? Their mm -hmm. identity. And the deal is, I think in that previous mode, what we were doing is we were shaving the person, the identity to serve the function, right? That they were, that they were supposed to play. And in fact, what that did was it creates not a person, but it creates a persona. It creates, a, a, like Glenn was saying, the mask. And for me, I'm thinking if I'm kind of trapped in that system, the only way for me individually to succeed is to continue to shave parts of me and become more of this false persona that I'm supposed to behave like. What I'm liking from your perspective is that you're showing me that really already, and you, it seems like you've been doing this for a while, you flipped that script. And so we still have the employee, right, as an individual, as a person, as a function. But the deal is your realignment, and this is what I've seen going on here. We had a role. We, we, we shaped the individual and shaved the individual. I like that one, to shave bits and letters <laughs> off, to serve, to, to meet so that they fit that function and therefore yeah. turn the individual into a persona, which is false, right? Enough inauthentic identity. 
But what you've done is you've repurposed this whole approach to where the, where the whole mission is to shape and to serve the individual, the person in the middle, and found a way that that actually makes sense for profit loss, let alone just loyalty. And so for here, what I'm seeing is that you've got the, um, the mission, right, which is uh, shaping the function, and that ultimately that function or role, right, is going to then be played into by the individual. The individual then has an, a chance to be themselves right there in the middle because they're, they're looking at the mission and they're shaving the mission, they're shaving the role, but they're not shaving their self, themselves. And I really just want to say I appreciate that approach that I'm seeing in you. And I wonder, how does that actually, does that actually sound like what you're doing? From an outsider looking in, that's what I think you're doing. But it seems to me that you shave the institution and the roles to meet the individual, as opposed to the individual being shaven to fit this mission and purpose and PL. I agree with your assessment. It is always aspirational to do what you said, which is give the individual as much space to be who they are and do good work as possible. I think where the HR function gets stuck is, and you said it, the perception is it's a compliance focused risk mitigating department. And if that's all you believe that it is, that's all that it will ever be. But in our world, in my world, no business works without people. And so we're a people business. We just happen to serve food. So when I'm looking at how I can better serve our employees, I've got a long list of things that I want to do. And the pacing and sequencing of those things is determined by, you know, how much money we have to devote to it, how much time and the prioritization of what we do and how it supports our strategy. So to the degree that we can, we try to filter in everything we can in a year. And we're rolling out a lot of things right now that I hope will our folks will find beneficial. But I think where people who do what I do can really add value, it is to match the human experience in an environment that the goal of the organization and helps that person grow either professionally or personally along the journey for however long their two paths interconnect. I mean, I think the priorities should match, right? I want to grow as a person. I want to get this experience. I want to become better. And hopefully I can do that inside of an organization that wants me to achieve those goals. Well, on that point, Diane, I think what you're saying, and I'll make this perfectly clear to our audience, that you're essentially saying that, look, societal issues in business are indelibly linked. And if we can't accept that fact, we'll never be able to put the individual at the center. Because today, they're being shaped by the things in society that moves them, that, that <laughs> drives them. And yet there's a business component that we all have to be very respectful and mindful of. So what changes to this role 
this HR executive role uh, that, forgive me, has historically been suppressed uh, because you can't take a cost center approach to growth. It just doesn't work. But now that we recognize that there's this societal piece to business, what needs to change? Why does the function need to evolve and evolve fast? Because if we don't evolve, we'll become extinct. And if we want to stay relevant, competitive, then we're going to have to meet people where they're at in terms of the issues we support, the issues we choose to speak out on, the things we allow our employees or not allow, you know, we have to respect that they're having their life experience. And if they're going to go to a, a protest or a demonstration or something, you know, we've got to look at those things differently today. If they want to volunteer for something that maybe has a different mission than our organization, we've got to have a discussion about those things now. And it can't just be, you can't do that if you work here, because then they won't work with you. Um, exactly. We, we've got to evolve and, and meet society where society is going, or, you know, we'll be the horse and buggy maker and um, a Cadillac showroom. It just won't, it just won't work. You know, Diana, I think what you said uh, triggered uh something in Scott. And I'm going to repeat what you said, and I'm going to ask Scott to jump in. If the okay. HR role that has been historically suppressed doesn't evolve, it will become extinct, Scott. And yet our businesses are driven by people. Scott, what's your reaction to that? It's the most, I think it's, it's brilliant because it's one of the most empowering things any individual or team could ever hear. Because a lot of times we come into a company, an organization, whether it's a restaurant or a university or whatnot, that's been there for a bit and has a lot of ways that they do things and they've been successful at it. And that's why you have a job because they've been so successful at what they do. And so in many ways you come into that and you feel that you can't really play with that system too much because you're just one person and this thing's been going on for a while. But for me, what this reminds me is that we all have to keep in mind at the beginning that no matter what institution it is that we work with, it is not a live not alive. It is people. It is the people are the cells that make that thing. And those people change all the time. So why wouldn't the institution itself? So for me, this comment that you're observing from Diane, it's it, it is empowering and it is about non-extinction. It is about staving off extinction because we're allowing for evolution because we're making sure that people know that they are the institution, that the institute is created by people. It is therefore shaped and can be reshaped by people. And that's the only truth. The institution shaping people creates institutionalized people. Yeah. Powerful. So this takes us to this question I have for you. And we're going to start trying to wrap this up is, you know, everyone keeps talking about the next generation. And as you know, in the early studies of the millennials, everybody thought that they can figure them out. Um, and they were tired of being labeled. And in fact, I think everyone's tired of being labeled and put in. Absolutely. Categories. But one thing is clear is that Gen Z and millennials 
they're just not going to assimilate uh, because they think that that's the right thing to do. I mean, let's just be open here. Our generation, we got caught in the standardization trap and assimilated. Now we've grown out of that, that lesson that we've learned to recognize what it did to us. Don't you think that leaders today have an inherent responsibility of showing this next, this next generation the way to navigate in a way that doesn't require assimilation? Because in the end, we've learned our lessons of stripping people of their identities, haven't we? I think we have to listen more to them first and then show them some options, right? I think these are a bunch of really smart people coming up in Gen Z and the younger millennials. And they've got a point of view based on their experiences. And it is all relevant to the world as the world works today. And, you know, our experiences are in the rearview mirror shape during different, very different times. So I think the first thing we have to do is understand where they are coming from, what's important to them. And then hopefully they'll want to come and help continue the organic growth of our organization. But I do think that if we try to make, you know, fit a square peg into a round hole, we'll lose them. And then our candidate pools, our customer groups, they'll die off and go somewhere else to where they feel a deeper connection. So I think, you know, what what I hear from the Gen Z folks that I know is they want a lot of different options. And the tried and true, there's more than one path to get where you want to go. It's all about the journey. And they expect companies to honor and acknowledge that. Now, this is a perfect example where standardization just doesn't fit for them, right? Because absolutely, they want options. They yeah. want options. So as you're talking, Diane, it, it's clear to me that there's a lot of work that needs to be done. And, and we're still on this journey of, of learning what works and doesn't work. But if you're going to leave the show today with a just a nugget of wisdom for your HR executive chief people officer peers, what would you tell them, especially given the discussion that we've had? You know, I would say, I'll go back to this Maya Angelou quote, and it is, people may not remember what you said, uh, and this is loosely, but they will always remember how you made them feel. Mm. At the end of the day, the employee-employer experience is a relationship, and it, there should be some give and take in both directions so that the relationship works for everybody that's involved. And if you're People who work for you don't feel valued or heard, then as an HR leader, you've got a problem. And so you better figure out a way uh, to change that. Well, um, Scott, jump in. I know you got something on your mind. 
I just, uh, I guess, you know, I just wanted to close out at least my, my comments with um, just an appreciation for what you brought today, Dan, in, in terms of the power of the metaphor of essentially the restaurant. And I think, you know, when we think about higher ed, like an institution, like a university, or we think about a large uh, corporation that's maybe producing product or technology, we can pretend that that's a lot more, it's way too complicated to really do the human thing. It's just too complicated. There's too many pieces and parts. And so we're just going to have to sort of settle. But I think the metaphor of the restaurant in so many ways, help. I think it can help us recognize that, no, remember, we're cells of the institution. We can create it. We can recreate it. So for me, the, the final thought would be, you know, this metaphor of, of all of what we do, if we think about it more as restaurant, it's something that we all are familiar with. We all eat to survive, right? And so, so let's, it is about eating and sharing food, the one thing that does help make us human. Um, first part, there's two pieces to this metaphor. First of all, I think of the kitchen and I'm thinking about the perennial kitchen versus front of house sort of side. And you told us, right? You're just like, be careful. You can dress this whole thing up, but you're still going to have these existing problems. And 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 particularly in the restaurant, where no matter what you do or what you serve, the kitchen is still the kitchen. It still looks the same as it did decades ago. And to to be honest, every kitchen I go to, I see it. It's that that's for people that we're not supposed to see, um, in many respects. But we can change that. And so for me, what I'm looking at this is that. That this relationship-based idea that you just talked about, it's not just the company and the customer that we have to put HR front and center. That's part of the triangle that make this, makes this whole thing work. And so the invisibly essential people that make our restaurants run and deliver some of the best food we could possibly celebrate with on a birthday or something, right? They're the people that are part of this process that we've left out. So when I think of the restaurant, kitchen versus front of house, and how do we get over that? And how do we make kitchen in front of the house the same place? That's what we need to do in higher ed. That's what we need to do in the corporate world. The shorter one is back to your service heart. The reason why the kitchen and the restaurant in particular, to me, is a powerful metaphor for all of us is that it boils down this idea that we're different in restaurants, at least restaurants that survive, because we don't deliver product. We deliver an experience that's going to be different for everyone involved, employee to customer and everyone in between. And so when I'm thinking about this, what you're doing is you're promoting service heart to lead to an experience versus, say, the QSR restaurant. They're great models and they make money, but they're actually they're focusing on product to make profit. And that's why when I go to a place that's a QSR, I get my belly filled, but my soul isn't. And so that's why I'm going to go to more restaurants like the ones that you work for and that you help shape, because what we want is an experience, not just the food, because we can have the food anywhere. So I'm just going to close by saying, I will remember your words, but I will also remember how you made me feel. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, and, and based on that, Scott, I'll, I'll share a, an experience I just had with uh, a chief medical officer in, in the healthcare industry who, who said, you know, Glenn, when uh, we, we're trying to do more and more clinical trials that represent all these different populations. And as you talk about, and as we've talked about suppressing or how HR has been suppressed or have people have, have felt suppressed, um, he said to me, well, in the past, when we didn't have certain populations represented in our clinical trials, we just said it was okay. Uh, 
because we got the majority of them. But now he's saying, my goodness, if you just if only one population is missing, think about how it impacts the whole. And I think that that's what's happening in this discussion is that we're learning that the individual's voice and perspectives and what they feel has been suppressed. And now we've had to reinvent ourselves to create new systems to make sure that their voices are on the inside, not the outside. But I think what's also happened here is that as HR has been historically suppressed, it needs to be on the inside, not the outside, because they've been neglected. It has impacted the whole, and it hasn't provided us the leadership readiness to be able to face these new facts that we must understand a person professionally, but even more so personally. So with that, I'd like to thank you, Diane, for your commentary, your wisdom, um, very enlightening. And with that, when you lead in the age of personalization, as you should, you will see things that others don't, do what others won't, and keep pushing when prudence says quit. Diane, thank you very much. Thank you, Scott. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Personalization Outbreak. Make sure to subscribe so you never miss a show. If you enjoyed the content, visit ageofpersonalization.com to check out our free streaming video series and learn how to get involved in the movement. I'm Glenn Yopis. I wish you a good day. And remember, without strategy, change is merely substitution, not evolution.